Let us hear the word of God. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge and the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, unto whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And the preaching of God's word this morning is from this passage of scripture, especially from the first verses, the first eight verses of this third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, and so on. Paul, in this letter, you may know, is making a summation of his teaching, which may be found in the other epistles which he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And here it seems that he would set out the great riches of God's grace in Christ, the riches of God's provision for his people in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the course of Paul's own ministry and the proclamation of this gospel of salvation through Christ, he has come to be a prisoner. And he writes this letter 
from Rome, from the city of Rome, where he is imprisoned by the Roman authorities. And this might be a cause of uh, much discouragement, in, indeed of embarrassment and humiliation for the church in Ephesus to which Paul writes. It might seem that this would be a reason why Christians should be uh, cast down in heart and when they regard Paul uh, an apostle commissioned by Christ and sent to preach the gospel puts now in, in prison and under confinement. But you see how Paul uh, addresses his situation. We have, first of all, in this passage, uh, the apostle's description of himself as the prisoner of Jesus Christ. You might think that Paul would speak of himself as Caesar's prisoner. He had appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he was to be taken. He was brought to Rome in order that he might present his case for the preaching of the gospel with liberty to Caesar himself, and to such a judgment court he would be brought. He is being held in confinement under Caesar's authority. Why does he not speak of himself as the prisoner of Caesar? Why does he speak of himself as the prisoner of Jesus Christ? And first of all, surely, Paul, with all that he tells us about God's mighty purpose for salvation in the first chapter of this epistle, surely Paul here, when he speaks of himself as the prisoner of Jesus Christ, is thinking of this, that he is a prisoner under confinement and under humiliating circumstances because it is Christ's pleasure. He thinks of himself not as one who is confined under Caesar's pleasure, but under Christ's pleasure. Because you know what Paul in all of his writings tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ and his identity he is the eternal Son of God, and He is the one in whom God is, is bringing to completion all of His purpose of redemption. Paul's understanding is the same as that uh, vision which was given by Christ Himself to the Apostle John and is recorded in the book of Revelation and there in chapters 5 and 6 where we see... God seated upon his throne and with a book in his hand. And that book is sealed up, closed up with seals upon it. And there is writing in the book. And the book, you see, represents the purposes of God to deliver his people from their sins. And John begins to weep because there is no one who is worthy to come and to take that book out of the hand of God and to open that book because the opening of the book is symbolic not just that God's purpose to redeem His people and how He will redeem His people will become known but that it will actually be brought to fruition that it will actually begin to be accomplished in time. The breaking of those seals and the opening of that book 
means that God's purposes are actually being fulfilled. They're being realized in time. And John is comforted by the angel who says to him, Weep not. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb in the midst of the throne of God. There is one who is worthy to open that book. And the one who is worthy to open that book is the lamb who once had been slain. The lamb who is in the midst of the throne of God. And you see that the, the meaning of that vision is this. That it is through the slaying of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. It's through His atoning, effectual sacrifice upon the cross that the redemption of God's people from their sins is brought to pass. And He is that Lamb who is seated in the midst of the throne. No one who is merely a creature of God can stand in the midst of the throne of God in the place of authority and of judgment, in that place of honor and of divine majesty, there stands the Lamb of God because He is the one who orders providence. He is the one who controls the events. He is the one who brings about the events that are the redemption of God's people from their sins. And that's how Paul thinks about his Savior as he, the apostle, is confined in prison. He sees himself as put there in that prison, placed there by Christ's authority. It is Christ who is guiding all the events of Paul's life and is guiding all the history of the church, is guiding the whole work of redemption. And this Christ who is ordering and arranging and governing the events of Paul's life. This Christ has a design for Paul to be there. And Christ then looks at his walls of confinement and the soldiers who have, have weapons to keep Paul in the prison and the locked gates and uh, the chains upon him. And he says, Christ has placed me here. These are Christ's chains placed upon me. Christ has has uh, put these boundaries upon my circumstances. Christ has put these limitations upon who I am and upon what I can do and where I find myself and how I am to spend my time and what my present duty is. Paul has a great love for the church. You see that in the first verse of this chapter. He says, I am the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. He says, I am here as the servant of Christ, placed here for the working out of Christ's designs and purposes, and I am here for your sakes. Yes, for the sake of you Gentiles who are, who, who are in the church in Ephesus. And you will be benefited. You will be helped by my confinement. When we are walking in the path of obedience to God, when we are walking like the Apostle Paul was, in obedience to God's revealed will, when we are in the course of duty, then it matters not what circumstances confine us, 
What circumstances limit our opportunities? What circumstances render us to our minds helpless? We are there in the in Christ's ordering of the affairs of our lives. We are placed where Christ in His pleasure would have us to be. And you need only consider the fruit of, of this, this confinement, these humiliating circumstances of the Apostle Paul. Because not only were the Ephesians blessed by the writing of this letter in this place of confinement, but the whole church of God through all the centuries since that time have been blessed. And your lives have been blessed by this confinement, by this limitation, by this boundering that was placed upon the life of the apostle because he was the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Does this not teach us with what quietness of spirit, with what submission, with what resignation we are to bear all the disturbances of our lives? Will we have any sense that Christ is ordering and designing all the inconveniences and all the troubles that vex our hearts? How can we be a Christian that brings honor and glory to God if our hearts are unduly distressed with the troubles and with the limitations that are placed upon our lives? When there are annoyances that come to us, when we do not see the desires of our hearts brought to pass, when we do not have perhaps opportunities that others around us have, when we do not have abilities that others have, when we do not perhaps have wealth or prestige that others have, and our hearts are vexed at this or we are distressed, or when we have pain of spirit and we cannot bear with the difficulty that the Lord calls us to walk in, do we bring honor to our Lord? Do we really think of ourselves with contentment as the prisoner of Jesus Christ, appointed in certain circumstances of life in which we are to walk? Remember how the Apostle Paul wrote from this place of confinement in his fourth chapter to the uh, Philippians and there in verses 11 and 12 he spoke of himself and his needs and he said not that I speak in respect of want for I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need Sometimes we have to accept very mundane tasks that are given to us and very embarrassing circumstances, lowly and humiliating circumstances that perhaps crush our pride, perhaps test us as to whether we are jealous of others, whether we envy others, whether we can accept the relationships that God calls upon us to pursue with others. Sometimes in a church, sometimes in marriage, in all the adjustments and accommodations of marriage, sometimes in families, we are placed in circumstances where we have to put up with things that 
that we feel are annoyances and grievances we just cannot bear. And we find it so humiliating, we find it so unpleasant. But you see, if we are placed in those circumstances, and if we are placed in, in, in those relationships to other people, in Christ's providence, and we have a duty towards those other people, then there is a moral dignity in accepting the humiliation, the embarrassment, even the shame of those lowly tasks and of those unpleasantnesses and of those things that grieve the natural flesh. You see, you may be in a circumstance where you have not come to much prominence before the eyes of men. You may be in a circumstance where you have tasks to do that are not regarded by our society as as uh, as prestigious or as exciting or uh, as uh, as of great interest. But in those sometimes to the world around us uninteresting circumstances and duties and relationships in the church are in a marriage or in a family. If you walk in obedience to the commandments of God, there is a moral dignity that is in that because the Spirit of God is enabling His people to walk in obedience to the will of God. And the Spirit of God is working the graces and the fruits of patience, of gentleness, of meekness, of self-control, of joy in doing the will of God. But also the Apostle Paul here speaks of himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ because surely he is very conscious that he belongs to Christ even if he is in situations of great difficulty or situations of shame and humiliation. He might look at this as a matter of great loss that he is put in confinement. And yet, though he does not have the, the apparent success of being at liberty and of seeing new, many new churches uh, uh, springing up as he would continue missionary journeys, as many things would seem to be uh, distressful and shameful about his situation, he is not being received among the great and the mighty of this world, but he is in a place of shame and of distress. And yet, this is that same Apostle Paul who is so rich in the teaching of his epistles about the doctrine of the union with Christ, which every believer has. If a man is, is in Christ, he is a new creature in Christ. He has been savingly joined to Christ and the blessing and grace and power of God has flown from Christ into the life of that Christian believer. And this Apostle Paul, he knows that it is not only when he is at liberty and it is not only when there is apparent a great uh, uh, fruitfulness and great uh, uh, uh uh, public success in uh, in the response of many to the hearing 
of uh, the Word, but it's also in these circumstances that seem at this time to be circumstances of loss and of shame. At this time also he knows that he belongs to Christ and as he walks in obedience to God's Word, Christ identifies Himself with this Apostle. Christ has commissioned this Apostle. Christ has appointed this Apostle to go. He has called this Apostle. And this Apostle goes forth not disowned by Christ because he's in circumstances that are shameful in the eyes of men. He knows that he's assisted by Christ. He knows he's upheld by Christ. He knows that the power of Christ rests upon him even in his sense of of personal weakness. Because this apostle, he knows that the strength by which the kingdom is built and the grace by which sinners are brought into that kingdom is not from the Apostle Paul. It's from the Holy Spirit resting upon him. It's from the, from the power of Christ reigning out of his throne in heaven to bring sinners into submission to himself. He knows that Christ is not ashamed of him. And he knows that Christ's grace is shining all the more brightly, that His power is all the more evident, so that while while Paul's name is 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 disappearing in the shame of his circumstances, the power, the redemptive power of Christ, and the conquering power of Christ in the lives of sinners and in the building of His kingdom, it is that power of Christ that is lustrous that is shining. Paul is content for his name to disappear, to be effaced in humiliating and shameful circumstances as long as the power of Christ is even more evident that through through the weakness of the Apostle, the power of Christ is seen in the salvation of sinners. Paul goes on in this passage and he also speaks about the stewardship that is given to him in the grace of God. You see it referred to, for example, in verse 2. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word. And he's talking about the, the knowledge and the revelation that has been given to him as an apostle to proclaim the, the, mystery, the mysteries and the truths of revelation in the New Testament Scriptures. The Apostle was one of those inspired by the Holy Spirit to give to us the text of the New Testament Scriptures. But the Apostle also sees in the, the, the stewardship that is given to him the proclamation of this Gospel from his lips among the Gentiles in particular. To proclaim this wondrous message in all of its all of its favor and its inclusion because consider how extraordinary it is that Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, he who was most exclusive, he who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he who was most zealous for the uh, traditions of the fathers, he who put most stock upon the fact that he was that he was a Hebrew and not a Gentile. 
that he, in this extraordinary choice of God, is made an apostle to the Gentiles. And you see the grace of God. Do you see how God exhibits here his mighty purpose? His purpose of grace to bring the Gentiles into the kingdom of God and into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and to teach his ancient Hebrew people that the church now is not only to include the Hebrews, it's to include the Gentiles also. God raises up Saul of Tarsus, this great Pharisee, this great, this man who is so exclusive, and he gives him to see that this gospel is inclusive, that this gospel is a gospel of God's favor to the nations of the earth and to people out of every tribe and language. And he sends this Apostle Paul out in this extraordinary choice that God made. Now, Paul speaks here and elsewhere about this proclamation of the gospel as, as a calling and an office which he receives. The apostles were not only... Uh, extraordinary figures in that they delivered the very text of the Word of God to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And because they also went out and had authority over all the churches and they were responsible for the organizing of churches and the establishment of the whole structure of, of government of officers and the ordinances of worship in the church in a large area so that at the end of the life of the apostles there were two fruits of their ministries. The New Testament scriptures had been written and the church had been organized and ordinances of worship and offices in the church and structures of government established by revelation from God over a great expanse of, of territory. But also, there is something that is a continuing pattern in the, li in the ministry and in the calling of the apostles because we have indications in the New Testament that they are, were also elders. The Apostle Peter, in, uh, in uh, his uh, fifth chapter of his first epistle, tells us that he also was an elder. And you have only to look at uh, the way in which Paul commends his ministry in Acts 20 to the elders at Ephesus. And you will see that he saw that there was much about his ministry as an apostle, which was a standard and a norm for elders after him to follow. And finally, in Acts chapter 6, when the deacons are set apart for their work, we have instruction that is given by the elders when the elders... Uh, the apostles tell us that there is a distinction of function. We read there in Acts chapter 6 uh, that uh, it is not reason that we the apostles should leave the word of God and serve tables. And so he says that the, the apostles say, A look out among you seven men of honest report full of the Holy Ghost whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
And there we have recognizable the basic task and office and calling of the eldership, the teaching of the Word of God and prayer, oversight of the congregation in application of the of of the Word to the lives of the of the of the congregation. And all through the New Testament then you have this notion that the proclamation of the gospel preeminently belongs to elders who are set apart for that teaching role and function. And the apostle speaks about his ministry, you see in verse 2 of our chapter, as a dispensation of the grace of God. And what the apostle is telling us there is that his calling and his work as a minister is a gift from God. It's a stewardship from God put in trust with him. Now, the apostles' writings are full of teaching that are of great importance for us in this respect because what the apostle is saying is that it is the grace of God that raises up anyone to be a minister of the gospel. And it is the grace of God that works in anyone in the accomplishment of the, of the calling that a gospel minister has. And that it is the grace of God that must be at work if there is to be any fruitfulness from the work of that minister. And you see that in Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, the apostle reflecting upon the graciousness of God's work in him as a minister of the gospel, says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Now, what the Apostle is saying there is this, that not only is a man called to minister the Word of God only by the gracious good pleasure of God, and not only does he have any ability to teach and and uh, to rule in the church by God graciously enabling him to carry out such functions, but that his sufficiency and his ability to bring forth fruit in the ministry is not of himself. He is dependent upon God because you see, he says, our sufficiency is not of ourselves. We are made able ministers of the New Testament through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6. And he goes on to talk about how the fruitfulness of his ministry is in the, the blessing of the Holy Spirit of God upon his preaching and teaching. What is it that converts sinners? What is it that edifies the people of God in the ministry of a minister of the gospel? What is it that sanctifies the people of God? 
How is there fruitfulness under the ministry of a pastor? The answer is given in Second Corinthians chapter 4 and at verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. How does a person come to be a new creature in Christ? It is when God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness shines in the hearts of unregenerate sinners. There's no such thing as a man having such abilities in himself that his abilities bring forth new life in unregenerate sinners. There's no such thing as a man having such a dynamic personality or a man having such oratorical skills or a man having such cleverness and such a smooth presentation that sinners will inevitably be brought to life from his ministry and the people of God sanctified and edified. Oh, it is because God who commanded at the creation that, that there should be light appear out of darkness. It is when He speaks and there is light shining then miraculously with divine omnipotence into the heart of a sinner that a sinner then sees the beauty of Christ and is drawn to worship and to adore the Savior whom He needs from His sins. It is, it is the power of God that saves sinners. And ministers, ministers have to be like the Apostle Paul in this passage where he says, this is the grace of God that is given to me in stewardship. You see, we shouldn't magnify the instruments that God uses in His kingdom. We shouldn't fawn over them. We shouldn't adulate them. We shouldn't be too dependent upon, we shouldn't, we shouldn't think as if, as if the, as if the trust of our heart should rest in ministers of the gospel or in any human resource. The trust of our hearts must be in the God who saves by His divine and omnipotent power. In the mercy and the grace in the love of God revealed in the Gospel. That's where our heart's trust must be. And you see what that means for us as a worshiping congregation? It must mean that we must pray for God to bless the preaching of His Word. And we must pray for God to bless the services of His worship. Is it not so true that there is very little prayer that is offered up among God's people for His blessing upon the services of worship and upon the preaching of the Gospel? But you see, we're not to depend upon the minister. We're not to depend upon human voices and human efforts. God uses instruments. He has raised up uh, uh, elders and blessed His church with them and given them gifts 
that He makes useful to His church. He makes them fruitful. But we must never forget that there is no, never a sinner saved except by the sovereign good pleasure of God. And God's people don't grow in grace. They're not sanctified growing in holiness. They're not edified unless God's Holy Spirit blesses the sowing of the seed of His Word, causes that Word to fall in the prepared ground of a good soil, a prepared heart that is responsive to the Word of God, a, a, a heart that is molded by, by the influences of the Spirit of God. Paul goes on in the 8th verse here to speak about his personal bankruptcy when he speaks about himself being less than the least of all saints. To him is this grace given that he should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He looks at himself. He's ashamed of his sins of his past. He's humbled. He's brought to embarrassment and to brokenness in the consideration of his sins of his past and indeed who he is at present. But all of his hope and all of his trust and confidence is in the unsearchable riches of Christ. May it ever be so with us. May God give us grace to ever trust in the unsearchable riches of Christ as all the hope of his church so that his church may be sanctified and edified as Christ, ruling from his throne, builds his church. Amen.